If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, and whether or not this is the last sermon in Romans depends on you. Um, <laughs> I'll start back over in one next week if there's not some improvements around here. I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, but it's been, it's been a, a it, for me as pastor, it has been a great joy to take the time that we've taken over the last couple of years to uh, make our way through Romans and hopefully be shaped by uh, the gospel, be shaped into those who uh, are, are righteous and, and live by faith. Uh, and, and that would be the definition that Paul would long for us, that we would reflect the character of God in the world. And remember, God's character is very clearly and beautifully stated by him in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And essentially, for shorthand, that we would become a more loving people that cares about what God truly cares about. And so, uh, as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with. God is to be praised for the revelation of the gospel unto salvation and for strengthening us in the preaching of Jesus Christ. God is to be praised for the revelation of the gospel unto salvation and for strengthening us in the preaching of Jesus Christ. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's concluding his letter to the Roman church with a doxology. So he's making sure that they, the last thing that they hear from him is praise unto God. And as you're going to hear from John Stott a little bit later, he in essence is summarizing the entire book of Romans in these just few short sentences. And so it, it will be helpful to us to make sure that we try to understand some of what he's saying because there's some great weight in these words. But before we turn to that, let me ask you. Who first shared the gospel with you such that it had an impact on you? And for some of us, that may be kind of hard. There may have been a number of people uh, that, were, that were along the way praying for us and really seeking to, to love us and care for us. For some of you, uh, maybe you're like Susan. You've just known that Jesus has loved you all of your days. But Susan would even say there's been people who've had an impact. It's been critical to your development in this regard. And uh, do you have an opportunity to let them know? Because it would be a real gift to them to know what they were, what, what, that their fruit was, that there's fruit born from their efforts. I had that opportunity. I've shared with y'all many times. There was a lady named Mama Gwen. I called her Mama Gwen. That was not her first name. First name was just Gwen. But Mama Gwen, every single day of my life, whether I was hungover, uh, angry at the universe as a radical anti-theist, full of other things, it didn't matter to her. She loved me. And she very, very simply shared the gospel with me day in and day out. I didn't want to hear it. I was mean to her. I'd try to say crazy stuff to her. And she'd laugh at me. Well, not at. That's probably the wrong term. She would laugh with what I would become in the future <laughs> when I could actually finally get the joke, right? And so she just recognized what uh, hubris I was displaying in front of her. And uh, she actually, uh, I wasn't in contact with her when I became a believer, but Susan had kept up with her, and so we had the opportunity to get on the phone with her and let her know that I had done exactly what she said I would do, which was be transformed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And she is not Presbyterian, so she got to shouting. And I think that's the appropriate response, even if you are Presbyterian. The Psalms do say, shout to the Lord, not shout to the Lord. Uh, and so uh, she got to shouting, and the joy that she expressed was just overwhelming. And she sent me a copy of Oswald Chambers' Mutmost for, for his highest. And in it, she said, to my son, Mama Gwen. Uh, and I still have that book, and that still means an awful lot to me. And that she just, I don't, and it's a hard thing to do sometimes, to just love somebody, to love me especially, just to ask Susan, she can tell you. Because uh, she, was, she was there then, uh, and I was. I was a wild dude, uh, even more so back then. And so you have people in your life that have helped shape and form you in, in, in the person and work of Christ as ordinary vessels. They're people with feet of clay too. They're not perfect. Uh, but, but they have, uh, have sought to endure in making sure that you had the truth of Jesus Christ before you. And so this is what Paul is trying to do for the Roman church here. Do remember, he never met them in person. He didn't plant this church. Uh, he was trying to give them instruction and be a benefit to them because there, there wasn't a major issue going on, as we, we noticed a few weeks ago, but, but there was some simmering issues that could devolve into a, a disunity within the church. And for Paul, and it ought to be true for us, disunity is the most destructive force in any church, any place, anywhere. It's very important that you understand that because I think that we think that what's going on in the culture is of greater risk to the church than what goes on inside the church. If Christ is who he says he is and doesn't look like it right now, then we ought to be concerned about the things that we actually do have some impact on. Well, the greatest power is a church united, a praying church, a missional church, a loving church. Now, will we ever be any of those things perfectly? No. And, and hopefully for good reason. Hopefully, as we're sharing the gospel, then, then people are coming in or coming to Christ, and those folks tend to, like me, be pretty messy. And so we'll always be in need of growing in these things, right? So Because as we're challenged, as we grow in Christ, we discover, oh, no, wait a second, I'm not as loving as I thought I was. I need to repent. And it gets messy for a while, doesn't it? And so uh, we recognize that while that's the goal in Christ, that it's, an, it's, an, it's a very progressive, ongoing, two steps forward, sometimes one step back, sometimes one step forward, three back. But either way, we can stay in the dynamic because of Christ who holds all things together. Amen? And so uh, Paul is now trying to give them something to, to, to stick to the ribs as he is closing the letter. And he says to them, now, to him... Who is able? Now, who's the him here? Well, it's God. He's referring to God who is able to finish what he started. Now, that is a great gift to us. How often do we get tangled up in the things of the earth, in the limited horizons that are right in front of us based on what limited information our dim eyes and ears can see and hear, and we think there's no hope? For this person, ourselves, our struggles, the circumstance. And yet, Paul would say to us from Colossians chapter 3, look not to the things of the earth, but instead to the right hand where Christ is seated, where your life is hidden on high to be revealed when he comes in glory. And that is a great gift to us that that is, all right, the end point is fixed. And we have been given house money to play from here to eternity. 
We're going to lose some, right? In the parable of the talents or even the parable of the minos, they were, they, it doesn't say that they lost anything, but it's clear that that was the risk and probably what happened to some extent because the guy who had the one hid his. Because he knew if I go out and I risk this and I lose this, the master, when he gets back, he's going to be really angry. But what he didn't understand is the master had already fixed the end. He was playing with house money. He was never going to lose what the master gave him in toto because it wasn't his to start with. And the same is true for us. We are never going to lose what the master has given to us. Now, did I just say we will never suffer? No. No, that's not true. In fact, suffering is a critical component of discipleship and union with Christ. Romans has taught us this. Remember from Romans 8. It said, if you are walking in the Spirit and in union with Christ. It's one of the markers. It's one of the ways in which we know who and whose we are. Is if we can, if we can at the end of suffering, say, praise God, I don't understand it. I don't know how to give it meaning. But without God, it would be utterly meaningless. And this would be a horrific dystopian place as opposed to the place of hope that we have because of Christ who has come and is coming again. And so he's saying that God who started this is going to finish it. And notice what he says, to him who is able to strengthen you. Why would you need to be strengthened? What are some of the circumstances that you would need to be, if, you, if you're going to have to persevere, what do you need? You need strength. If you're going to have to, as it, as it said to us earlier in 15, if you think yourself strong in your theology and understanding of things, well, then you're going to have to carry the burdens of the weak and their failings. Does that take strength? You ever dealt with somebody who just messes up a whole bunch? And it's costly to you, and they just can't seem to get out of their own way? Now, this wasn't for parents to now look at your children. That was not the place for this, or spouses to look at their spouses. This is the reality. If we're going to do life together in the church, we are going to, to run across each other, right? We're going to get in each other's way a little bit. And so there are times we need strength to be able to keep going together because it's just never going to be easy. Never. And so we need strength for perseverance. We need strength to actually love each other. We're going to need strength because we live in a fallen world that is constantly seeking to to slowly drain or quickly drain God's image and glory from us. You need strength to be able to endure. In fact, a lot of what the world offers is a lot better in the immediate than what the church offers. Think of the great freedoms of of what we can do with our bodies and what we can do with our identities and what we can do with all these different things without all this stricture that the church puts upon us. Think of the books we can read and the movies we can watch without guilt and the way we can use our money. We don't have to be generous. We get to use it for our own good. Is that not, and, and don't get overly spiritual here, that is attractive It's oftentimes more attractive than what the the eternal fruit that Jesus offers us in submitting those things to him. And so you're going to need strength. I'm going to need strength. We're going to need strength to endure all these things and still yet glorify God because it is a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And it may be one of those like crazy David Goggins hundred milers out in the desert type deals, right? 
And he says that he strengthens according to something, and this is very important to, and Paul refers to it as my gospel. Now, the reason he says that is not because he came up with it, but he's referring back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is where he said to them, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? He says, it's the power to save. It's God's power to save everyone, the Jew first and then the Gentile. And then he goes on to quote Habakkuk chapter 2 where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's essentially saying it's the gospel that has the power, not us. And it's the gospel that has the power to unite a disparate group of people. Keep in mind, the word Gentile is a huge umbrella of every tongue, tribe, and nation, not Jewish. That's really important. Because we could hear that as two groups of people, and it is, but it's one group of people and then a whole bunch of people under the umbrella of Gentile. Who, by the way, had differing opinions about lots and lots and lots of things. And the Jews did as well. And remember, part of the issue that was kind of pulling at them was trying to decide who does God love more. And remember, Paul's resounding answer was, all of you. He loves all of you. And it doesn't matter who he chose first because he chose those people first for the purpose of who would come later. You're all in this together. You all came in by the same way. You were all unified in your need for the gospel and your fallenness. You were all unified in how it goes down by faith alone, uh, through, by, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so that's his gospel. So it's, it is that that can strengthen us. And that's why we have to continue to keep ourselves before the gospel. And the gospel needs to be kept in front of us as well. And how does he do that? Well, it is the preaching of Jesus Christ. So it's the preaching of the word that becomes critical to our ability to grow in strength. Now, I'm gonna, it, it sounds like uh, that, that because this is what I do, you would think that I have a really, really high view of preaching, and I do. But I also recognize it may be the most foolish way humanly thought of to disciple you. For instance, we've been in Romans for two years plus. How many things do you remember from all those sermons over the last two years that's not just you quoting the scripture itself, but what I said? Dave, <laughs> you want to come testify? There's a microphone. Right? And it's a monologue. Like, how effective is it to have a, a didactic monologue conversation and think that that's powerful, right? And the room's hot, and people are moving around. We got kids running. They're alive. That means they're running. That's a good thing to some extent. Now, look, they learn something. They're gentler as they leave. It's distracting, right? Like, how in the world does this make any sense whatsoever that this would be the main method by which we would grow in the gospel? That is utter foolishness, not just to the Greeks, but to us all. And yet, the Lord chose to send his son to become a king who would not take up a physical sword, 
who wouldn't look anything like any of the rulers of this earth, who wouldn't be dashing or handsome or Reagan-esque or Romney-esque or Obama-esque. He wouldn't even get a second look from any of us. Meek, humble, mild. Loving, sacrificing. What, what kind of leader is that? He's not going to turn this country around. I mean, really? And so, we need to recognize that this is important and, and endemic to the story itself. If, if the Savior himself is, is absolutely no one we would have ever chosen, in no way we would have ever chosen, how do you come up with, we're going to live better by dying? What? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So it would also make sense that if the God who chose to do it that way, not to mention he, he chose to tell of the coming of this king through the prophets, which if you met any of them, you wouldn't like them at all. Because they see stuff and say stuff that you don't want seen or said. And they probably smell funny, especially that Ezekiel guy. I mean, he laid on his side for how many days and then ate a dung patty when he woke up. He probably didn't smell good, right? Like these were some wild dudes. And so, so he chose that method, right? Not, not, not a bunch of beautiful people coming, offering banquets and all this kind of stuff. No. The last one was probably worse than all the rest of them. He said, you all need to repent or die. Wow, that's quite the sermon. It's John the Baptist. He prepared the way for this king. So God's been doing this for a minute. And then he chose to have a bunch of people write a book across the centuries and then had some people after them try to figure out which ones of those books should make it into the Bible according to the Holy Spirit. And then he chose to have it translated by some people who some translations were a little little uh, motivated by political things and some weren't, so we're trying to figure all that out. How many of you, when you got not eaten the original manuscripts, you're like, well, then what's it doing in my Bible? John 8, one of the best stories in all of Scripture. Most scholars think it doesn't belong there. I think it stinks so much of Jesus it ought to be there. So what do we do with all that? How in the world are we to know what to do? Well, if you read the end of Mark 16, the only thing that's going to lead you to do is handle snakes. And if you want to do that, there's plenty of churches in North Georgia and Alabama and some other places that would love to have you. And I hope it works out. That's all you get from that passage, right? And so it's important that we recognize the foolishness of this. So if it's, if it's foolish in and of itself, then how much more do we need to make sure that we are attentive to it because God said it is what he would use? So you can fall into the trap of saying, I've heard all this before. And that may be true, but have you felt it? Has it changed your life? Has it made you stronger? And so we recognize that this is not, there's much, much better ways to do it than monologue, which is maybe why we have some of the other things to augment, discipleship, small groups, and all of these other things. But you need to understand, he didn't say that any of that would be that. This, this gathering, this foolish gathering on the Lord's Day Sabbath, together he, that he would be with his people, something powerful happens. Sometimes it's a flood. 
Sometimes it's, it's immediate, instantaneous, like the day that I became a Christian. Wasn't even the sermon that got me, that I knew of. But I had a profound uh, uh, salvation experience. And then for some of you, it's like water slowly over a rock over the years, where you look up and realize, hey, I'm actually more loving and humble than, than I intended. Or I'm actually, I'm actually more concerned about my sin than I actually realize. And so it's important that we hear Paul here. That he's, he's speaking to, it's this foolish thing, this preaching of the word, the sharing of the gospel, that is actually what strengthens us. And what's interesting is what he says ought to be the emphasis. Because he goes on, he says, um, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Now what's interesting is he's saying, what, what ought to be preached is not the, the ten steps for you to be a great parent. It's not what ought to be preached. Uh, what ought to be preached is not, not how you can better, how you can make more money so that you can decide whether or not you might be a little more generous than you've been. What he actually says ought to be preached is, is something that was very near and dear to Paul. Every time he uses the word mystery, he's speaking of the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's speaking of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Anybody's eye, ear, heart, or head that these people would come together. And so we fail in our calling if that is not in some, some part the point of what we are always preaching. We don't always say it the same way. Like in the sacrament series that's coming up, this idea is critical to our understanding of the sacraments. You're going to hear it a lot in many, many ways. But it's Paul's emphasis. It was God's emphasis in the Abrahamic covenant. It's God's emphasis in and through his prophets. If we were to go to Ezekiel chapter 36 right now, we would see that God says to Israel, who has profaned his name in the world. He says, you have profaned my name to the nations, and it is not for your sake that I'm going to redeem you. It is for mine. It is for my glory, my namesake. Now, you may say that sounds a little bit selfish, but what you fail to understand is when God is glorified, then other people are invited into the family. And he goes on to say, when I reestablish you in the land and give you back everything you've lost, though you don't deserve it, I will then display to the surrounding nations my glory and draw them to myself. So the point of the gospel is... For the family to get bigger. Now, I didn't just say that the only thing we're ever going to do from here forward is evangelize or these kinds of things. No, it happens through lots of avenues, right? There's lots of ways <clears throat> that we are able to display our love for our neighbor and our love for one another and our love for God. That's a, a beautiful gift to us. But all, we always, always, always ought to have at heart a desire for people to be welcome among us. Hospitality is, is critical to, to who and whose we are. And so this is a critical component. Now, I want to go back and say something. Is it, is it a bad thing for us to help instruct you on how to be a better parent? No, it's not. That's a good thing. This just is not the avenue for that, according to Paul and according to the, the sweep of Scripture, according to Jesus. I want you to have more money so that you might be just a little more generous. I want you to have flourishing marriages. But why? 
so that we as a church body together can spread the gospel and help make, if you want to make this world a better place, it becomes a much better place as people actually bow the knee to Christ as king. Law only serves to incite the heart and make people more angry. God said this. We've seen this in Romans. It's what he talked about in Romans chapter 7, 4 and 7. And so we need to recognize that this is our charter. This is our calling. This is who we are to be. And he goes on to say that, that this is according, so the, the, the fact that the love of God and that that actually is according to the command. That is something that he said, he stated, and has stated again and again and again. And it goes on to say, to bring about the obedience of faith. And actually the translation would be there uh, that, that essentially it's the uh, obedience born of faith. So it's not obedience that produces faith, right? That would be works-based. That would go against everything Paul said in the book of Romans thus far, but instead what he's saying is, is that our faith in Christ ought lead us to want to be pleasing to him. It ought to lead us to want to be part of the, the missio dei, the mission of God, the kingdom of God, and that we would long to uh, have opportunities to do that. And the good news is the world is not every one of ours to save. We each have spheres of influence. We have circumstances that we're in. We have seasons right now. Susan is in a season where she has aging parents. I do too, by the way, in-law-wise, but, but a good bit of her time is focused on loving her mother and father well, which takes up a lot of the frame, does it not, for those of you who've gone through this. Now, is she being disobedient? Should she, like, let the dead bury the dead or whatever? I don't know. Uh, should, should she not care about them because they're, they're already professing Christians? No, no. Her, what she's doing, and many of you in here, I already saw it in your faces, it already resonates. What she's doing, many people will go through, and they're going to need somebody to walk alongside them lovingly and help them not grow weary in doing what is one of the greatest goods in this world. It's helping those who are aging uh, die well. And so uh, it is a very important thing. Uh, I got way too immediate on the die part, but you know what I mean. Like, like live well unto until the Lord calls them home. It's not easy. But I would say that is, Susan is doing beautiful gospel work that will actually have fruit born long into the future for other people. She will have a wisdom. Like you can't just tell people the steps of doing this if you haven't gone this route. It is a very specific uh, fraternity and sorority, is it not? And so I want us to be careful that you're not hearing me say that if you're not out with a bullhorn and you're not passing out tracks and you're not trying to save the world and you don't care about every riven thing, that, that you're not a real Christian, not at all. In fact, remember, remember the instrumentality. When Jesus came, I don't know if you know this or not, but he never really traveled much more than a one-by-one-mile square. And he even said, you all will do way more than I in my physical habits, my humanity is, was ever able to do. And so he puts together the body of Christ so that no one of us feels the whole weight of uh, feeling like we got to save the world. 
And so sometimes, I love here and haven't used in a while, quotidian things that go on. Uh, it's, it's very important that we not have some hyper-spiritualized view of what Paul's saying here. It's not. He's making it very clear, this is just life. And it will occur through the ordinary means. And that is how God will strengthen you. And then he breaks out in doxological praise. He says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And he recognizes that God is wise in doing this. That it is the, the, the best way that it ought happen. And he's essentially telling him that they will bear fruit. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 when he's saying, I am the vine and you are connected into the vine. And he says very clearly, if you're connected to the vine, it is guaranteed that your life will bear eternal fruit. Guaranteed. Better that you work along the grain of that for the, the way the only wise God has decided and the opportunities that he's provided for you. It's better that you follow that instead of you trying to, in your effort, in your strength, and your foolishness, do something different. Even 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 reminds us, if you remember, it's the great passage chapter on the resurrection. He says, because you are resurrected in Christ, therefore, your work is not in vain. What you do in this world, everything you put your hand to that it glorifies God and ultimately is good will bear fruit of some kind. You may not see it. You may not get to, to, to enjoy it, but somebody somewhere will or you'll get to see it again in the new heavens, new earth. What a gift that that is to us to know that these ordinary, so foolish, everyday things, raising of kids, sticking it out in marriage, Loving one another when it's not easy. Coming alongside those who are grieving. Coming alongside those who are aging. Coming alongside those who are hurting. All of those things are good work. They're hospitable works. We're not great at it all the time. Some of you I know we have failed. And I'm sorry. But we're trying to get better at what God has called us to do. To display the gospel so that when other people witness us loving one another... They would want to be a part of it. And they would want to know the God who has loved us first so that we might love them and him. Right? So, let me ask you this. How have you been affected by various preaching ministries that preach Christ alone throughout your life? For the people who have focused on preaching what we have heard here, the, the, the unity of the people in Christ, the every tongue, tribe, and nation, right? How has, that, how has that strengthened you? And for some of you, you may not even know. It may, again, it may be that water over the rock type deal. But it's worth asking the Holy Spirit to help of the faithful pastor who does this, who's not terribly dynamic, who doesn't have a platform, who isn't screaming about the culture, who isn't screaming about politics, who isn't screaming about whatever, that that's less effective. No, it isn't. And so it is very important that we ask the Spirit to help us to see all the ways in which He has been at work in some of the things that we have discounted or even dismissed. And then, are you grateful to God for providing this means of grace to help strengthen and shape you further into the image of Christ? Are you thankful for those who are faithful to make sure that they are rightly dividing the whole counsel of God's truth? Not just the parts that are easy, not just the parts that are, that are clean, 
Not just the parts that, that would, would justify what we already think we know, but the stuff that calls us to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, that calls us to be measured against Christ and nothing else. So Romans 16, 25 through 27 teaches us that God is to be praised for the revelation of the gospel unto salvation and for the strengthening of us in the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is a gift to us. And it's also a gift to us on the day where we have heard this message that we get to be nourished with the elements of the table. This is, uh, everything you have just heard is what is displayed in the Lord's table. Again, does it make sense that if we were going to talk about nourishment and being strengthened in the gospel, that we would do that through a little bit of juice and a little wafer of bread? No, that's foolishness. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes something profound. It becomes the avenue by which he brings us before the very throne where Christ is seated on high. And you're like, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I just feel like I'm stuck here with y'all. It's hot. Uh, and these seats aren't comfortable. I would like to go to the right hand. That'd be nice. It's probably cool up there. Well, but this is something that's happening within the spiritual realm, but in a very real way, right? And so the Spirit is able to transform things and do with things that we don't understand. It's as uh, C.S. Lewis said about Christ when he came through the door. You remember Jesus, they're in the upper room, it's locked, and he comes through the door. Was that a magic trick? Was it, what was that? Well, Lewis has a great perspective. He says, no, it was Christ who was more real than the door itself. It's the door that had to pass through him. And so there's a sense in which we are not even recognizing what is real and full because we are limited. And so praise be to God that the Holy Spirit does stuff outside of the, our knowing what's going on sometimes. But we get to know that what the Spirit is doing in this is presenting Christ, of the, the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, for the new covenant. We know that this is a table of unity, of hospitality. So if you are a Christian who knows that Christ is your Savior. You are welcome to partake with us. If you are struggling with sin and know you're a Christian, you're welcome to partake with us. Just so long as that sin is not that you are unwilling to forgive somebody, and that unwilling is a key piece. You may be in process. There are long, protracted circumstances that require a, a, a struggling to forgive. Well, struggling to forgive is different than unwilling, right? So if you're struggling to forgive, you need the nourishment from this table. And so I would welcome you as you receive the elements to hold on to them because we're going to take together as family because we recognize this isn't just radical individualism. We are in this together. And we, our Christianities, are all made better by the person sitting around us. Make note of that. You are enriched because of those who are around you. And so uh, you want to take time to, to meditate on those things, and, and then we'll all take together. Uh, the elders can go ahead and come forward, but I want to remind us of what Jesus said in that last meal. And you've got you to try to put yourself in that place where they had seen so much and so much was going on, and the stakes were raising so high. And in that moment of all the things Jesus could have done, he chose to do this thing that makes no sense. He has a meal with them. It's in the context of the Passover, but he transforms it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes the bread and he breaks it 
And he says, this, this is my body and it is given for you. And they didn't even yet know what all that meant, but he said, I want to make sure you guys have something to remember me and remember what I'm doing for you in the days ahead. And so what he was saying to them is the totality of your shame and guilt and sin and God's required and just wrath against it is going to be satisfied in me so that you can be satisfied by me. And then as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it up and he said, this this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Which sounds like he's just saying the same thing he just said, but the new covenant means that you now, they would have heard, we now have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. We are being transformed by the blood of Christ in his resurrection. And what a gift it is that he does all of that for us, and it is displayed in something so meager, so humble as this meal. And so I want to pray for us, uh, and then we'll distribute the elements Uh, For those of you who are visiting with us, you'll notice there's a a cup with some bread in it, and then there's a juice cup that also has this wafer on top. If you have gluten issues or or some other sort of digestive thing, take the one with the wafer on top. You can use that. You're going to have to take it anyway because it's the only one with the juice. I said, please hold, and we'll take together as family. And then we'll celebrate what God has done, done for us in Christ with the singing of the doxology. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to use earthen vessels such as us to distribute these common elements in this common setting that makes so little sense to the world and sometimes even to us, that you would work through so many ordinary means to make sure that we hear the gospel, that we see the gospel, that we experience the gospel, that we are transformed by the gospel. Would you use these things today to shape us further into the image of Christ and maybe in your kindness, we would, we would be able to recognize that. Would your Holy Spirit be at work in us this day to bring to mind the ways in which you are forming and transforming us? The ways in which we are growing more loving, more patient, more kind, more like you in your character, more like the fruit of the Spirit. And God, where there are places where we need to repent, would you convict us in the power of the Spirit, help us to to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. May it be genuine, may it be humble, may it be broken. And God, I pray you would also guide us as to how to be obedient in and through the faith that you have granted to us in your grace. Help us, Father, to display your love in this world because we have been first loved. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.